Hey, hey, guys. Um, well, first of all, apologies for the quality of this video. I um, forgot for a little bit that I had to re-record videos because we rearranged some of the topics for this year of Forge. And um, when I went to go re-record them, I unfortunately didn't ha have access to all of my normal stuff. And you know how I am with technology. So we're just making do with my regular laptop. And I will not disclose my recording location because it's quite embarrassing, but we are getting it done. So my apologies if, um, if it's a little bit blurry, um, but you're here for the content, not my face. So that should, it should all work out. Um, today, our topic is the rhythms and habits of God's people. So put another way, um, what does it mean to live the Christian life? What does it mean to live by faith? And there are really two significant components of um, the Christian life, which are intimately connected and yet um, not one and the same. And so those are the individual Christian life and then the corporate Christian life. So, of course, the corporate Christian life um, is off. We kind of generally refer to that as the church. And um, of course, you just heard Kyle talk about the birth of the church and the doctrine of the church um, <clears throat> as you went through um, Acts and Missiology and Ecclesiology last week. And then this week, we're going to look at the practices of the church, the practices of the church collectively or gathered, we would say, and the practices of the church scattered, which is individual as we are um, out on our own in the world. So I want to start by imagining for a second that you have moved to a new place and you want to be part of a church. I imagine that's something that many of you have actually done recently. Um, actually, my husband and I, that is one thing that we have never really had to do. When we moved to Dallas 15 years ago, some of our friends were already a part of church and we joined that church. And then that just morphed um, over the last 15 years. And we've been part of the same small group ever since then. So uh, I haven't really had to think about it. And yet, of course, all of us are thinking about it every Sunday as we're deciding and redefining, okay, is this, you know, we're putting our membership here and so on and so forth. Um, but anyway, if you're imagining um, or maybe or reflecting on your personal experience of finding a church, deciding what kind of church do you want to be a part of, uh, you probably have done some church shopping, right? You've probably evaluated and compared different churches, right? Well, when you do, how do you do that? Typically by going on Sunday and evaluating what their Sunday service looks like, right? And then usually the, the greatest reflection question we tend to ask is, um, what can this church offer to us? What does this church offer me? What am I getting out of it? Now, the question is, how does the New Testament, or how does God, rather, through the New Testament, expect us to evaluate and consider our participation in the church and in turn um, in our individual Christian life? The New Testament, as you heard, you know, some parts of last week has a lot to say about churches and what churches should do. But one thing that's interesting as we're turning now to the practices of the church is that the New Testament does not spend much time on exactly how the church gathers. There certainly are components of that. But for the most part, um, most of the what as related to the churches is more of a general abstract idea of what kind of people the church ought to be less the gathering, what the gathering ought to look like, and rather what the people ought to look like. We see that they are to be not partial, self-sacrificing, transformed. Their minds are to be marked by scripture, patient, 
bearing with one another, united, wise, careful about the time, not marked by sin, extending mercy, serving the poor, the widowed, the orphan, and holding fast to the word. When the New Testament talks about um, the church collectively, it uses a lot of pictures and imagery. So we hear a lot about the, the church as a body or a temple, a family or a household, right? And I might un- argue, however, as we think about the church shopping narrative, that many of us in this day and age, especially in the last 50 years, have unconsciously tended toward a different narrative or metaphor or image of the church. Over the past century, and especially since the 1950s, church has become less people and more professional. Faith has also become less public and more private. Many of us were raised to view faith as something like our own private car. Now, maybe not consciously or explicitly like that, but uh, internally or or unconsciously. Private, our faith is private because maybe it can serve um, like a car, a few people at a time, and it gets us to where we're going. going. So then church is like a full service gas station. We get a little fuel, get a little tuna by the professionals, because of course, none of us really know what's going on under the hood. And then we go about our personal journey, right? And in the last 10 plus years, maybe 20, uh, there's been a big push toward community. So both of our churches benefit from that. A lot of us used to be Sunday school. And of course, now it's community groups of some kind. Um, and really, I kind of what that does is it just exchanges the private car for a sprinter van, right? We're still doing the same thing, but now maybe there's a few other people in the car with us or it's a larger car. I think, though, we have more work to do. Because the New Testament's vision of the church and Christian life is more than sprinter vans. When it teaches us about the church as a body, it says that it's like we all have one note to play. To play music, however, a symphony or an orchestra, we need more than one note. Now, what's difficult is that when we play different notes, it creates tension. The right kind of tension produces something beautiful called harmony. And the wrong kind of tension, two notes in conflict, produce dissonant. But even the most dissonant notes, when placed in the right chords, can create music. Different notes all sounding together without any order is called noise. But different notes sounding ordered by what is true, good, and beautiful is called music. So the next two lectures are about the music of the church. And in order to play music, we have to keep a few different notes in tension, a few different chords that will be the theme of what we're talking about. We're going to be considering the church gathered and scattered. So Christians when we are together and then Christians when we are on our own. And then even when we are scattered, there's what we do individually, just one personally, and then what we do collectively, like maybe in in different groups or the way that we um, complement one one another with our different giftings. And then there's there's another tension we have to consider, which is the inward and outward reality, right? So faith versus works, the thing that we believe on the inside and the thing that we do with our hands. And then lastly, there's the vertical and horizontal um, axes as well. So the church practices, the Christian life practices um, faith horizontally in how we treat one another and and the world, and also, of course, how we interact with God vertically. If we lose any one of those notes, then we've lost the music. The goal of the church is to be a changed people that practice the kingdom of God corporately, collectively, and individually for and before a watching world. Let me say that again. The goal of the church is to be a changed people 
A changed people that practice the kingdom of God corporately, collectively, and individually, both for and before a watching world. So that is um, the thing that I want us to keep in mind. And what we're going to, where our key point where we're headed today in terms of how we actually accomplish that goal is living by faith. So here is our key point. You can write it down if you um, have pen and paper with you. Our key point is that living by faith is a cultivation of practices that restore and restory us as whole people in cooperation with the Spirit. So it's not something we do on our own. We have to do it with God, but it's also not something that God just does to us. It's something that we have to cooperate in. Living by faith is a cultivation. So get it? We don't get to snap our fingers. It's something that we have to grow and carefully um, uh, cultivate like we would cultivate a garden. Living by faith is a cultivation of practices that restore and restory us as whole people in cooperation with the Spirit. So what I'm saying here, and and part of the undertone that you should hear, is that faith is not only cognitive assent or praying a prayer. Faith absolutely is a belief that comes from seeing the better story. But do you believe the better story if you don't live according to it? All that we do in every domain of our existence is either in allegiance with the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. So we are practicing that allegiance in every aspect of our being. Now, that being said, faith is also not only a practice. So this is a spectrum and we have to kind of keep both of these things. Um, there's errors on, on either side. Faith is a cultivation of practices, but there is a possibility of those practices becoming empty rituals when or if we do them like magic tricks in order to earn us favor with God. All of us have probably been there. Certainly there are entire denominations and churches that tend that direction. And when we're doing that, what is happening is that we're neglecting the relationship and the destination that is the goal of these practices. Practices aren't means in and of themselves. They're simply a way of setting our sights on the destination, which is God himself. So faith is both the awakening that happens in us when we are captivated by a new vision of reality, right? The only true reality. And it's the practicing of our allegiance to that reality. So what are those spiritual or faith practices? There's a few different names for them. Sometimes we hear them called spiritual disciplines or habits of grace, et cetera. Um, a lot of times when I say that, immediately people think of, or I think of, meditation, fasting, prayer, right? Well, we'll get into this in the third lecture, the third video, but I want to argue today that spiritual practices encompass not only those particular sort of uh, um, practices within the spiritual domain, but rather encompass our whole person and life across multiple domains of humanity, including the spiritual, emotional, relational, intellectual, physical, vocational, and stewardship. Don't worry, I'll let you write that down later. So to define it this way, I would say spiritual practices are intentional actions and mindsets cultivated individually and corporately to mortify sin and vivify Christ in our whole selves, our daily life, and our community. You can find that in the listening guide. Why do we do spiritual practices or faith practices? You cannot change what God thinks of you by your faith practices. You can change what you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. That is what we can change by the way that we practice. We make small decisions every day that demonstrate our value, our habits, our frustrations, our wallet, our calendar, our temper tantrums. They all demonstrate what we truly love. 
So conscious or unconscious, our actions and mindsets cultivate either a greater allegiance to the kingdom of self or allegiance to the kingdom of God. So we cultivate these practices to take what is a spiritual reality and live into the spiritual relationship of it. Can't change what we what God thinks about us. But we can change the relationship that we have with him. So when I am doing that, I cannot earn grace. These faith practices cannot earn grace, but I can put myself in the way of grace. It's like saying, I can't make a horse drink water, but I can bring it to the stream. I cannot force God's hand. That wouldn't be grace. That would be manipulation and earning and legalism. But I can put myself where I know his hand is at work. Why would I not? Right? Now, that sounds great. Like, some kind of mystical knowledge of life of where there's we can I can find abundance. Just tell me what to do and I'll get there, right? But here's a word of warning. Living by faith is not a walk in the park. Christian life is challenging. Listen to some of the things that the Bible has to say about this process. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay. Later, he says, it is for discipline you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? For all moment, in the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Hmm. This isn't exactly sounding like what I want to experience, Right. By God's power, this is 1 Peter 1, 4. By God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith um, is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Um, and so on and so forth. Um, in second Corinthians, it says, so we do not lose heart though. Our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things, not that are seen, but to the things that are unseen and so on and so forth. We are called, um, rocks. This it's, this journey is likened to, um, a race to something of endurance, to discipline, to walking for a long time, um, to the slow process of building a building. Also we're likened to, and called to be sacrifices and offerings, um, none of which are particularly pleasant images. And this is just a small sampling of the images that the word offers us to describe the process of the Christian life. And then millennia of the church have offered even more images. So what should our takeaway be from this? First, the Christian life is a journey that involves gradual change and ascent to God. You can't snap your fingers. It's a gradual change and ascent to God. One. Two, we move along that journey by seeing God. We set our mind on Christ, and that's by setting our mind on him, we become more like him. It forms our reality. So that is how we move along and ascend it to God. Thirdly, and most importantly, the triune God is the way, the means, and the end of this journey. The way, the means, and the end. Jesus, of course, is the way. He's mapped it out for us. The spirit is the means, the power by which we, um, and the guidance and direction by which we proceed down this. And the father is both the origin, but also the end. We are ascending and being purified that we might stand with him face to face. They are overflowing love for each other. Um, is the power and the animus for this journey. So when we say we are ascending to God, what we are ascending into is their love to greater love. So 
even when these practices themselves might feel empty, we believe that cumulatively over time, they bring us into a greater love. It also means that there's going to be an affective or emotional component of this journey. We are following ultimately the way of loved as mapped out by Christ. Now, if we are following the way of Christ, there's something that we need to consider because the way of Christ was not, um, again, this is going back to the idea of it not always being super pleasant. Uh, The way of Christ was marked not only by resurrection, but also by death. He was very clear with his disciples that the Christian life would be like taking up a cross. So this is the tension that we feel as we follow Christ's way and the map that he has laid out for us. On the one hand, he has taught us that he is the fount of all happiness um, and love. But on the other hand, he has shown us that the journey of love is one of self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice does not even does not always feel happy. So it creates a little bit or gives us a picture of this dual nature of the Christian life. It can often feel a bit bipolar. On the one hand, we are to die to self. On the other hand, we are to live to Christ. We are being tested and poured out. We're also being transformed into glory. We are persecuted and suffering and poor and lowly. We're also blessed and happy and flourishing. How can we have suffering also be the way of flourishing? Well, there's a lot more we could say about that. In fact, one of um, Kyle and I's dear friends and mentors, Jonathan Pennington, has written an entire book on that. So I'll leave that for another time. Uh, But I think it should suffice to say that one of the things that's going on is that there are two agents of sanctification, us and the Holy Spirit. To the extent that sanctification is dying to self, that is self-effort. But to the extent that it is glorification, that is the work of the Spirit. So we are cooperating with the Spirit just like we were intended to in the cultural mandate. Two other words that you might hear for those different poles or ends of the spectrum of sanctification are mortification, to put to death, and vivification, to bring to life. So we carry both of those voices within us. We carry the voice of life and death. Our self doesn't want to die. So to a certain extent, sanctification creates a war within ourselves. And our self doesn't know how to live to God. Sometimes we're so used to warring with our desires that we um, we can make the error of trying to put down or, or put to death all desires, forgetting that actually what God wants us to do is purify our desires. So we are to put to death our selfish and evil desires, but we are actually to bring to life our God-given and glorifying desires. We were created not to live a life devoid of anything pleasurable or enjoyable. Rather, we were created to enjoy God forever. The problem is we were born enjoying sin. And so we have a tendency when we first believe to put to death all enjoyment. We can be so focused on being sinners that we forget we were created saints. Born sinners, yes, but created saints. And of course, another huge challenge in the midst of this sanctification journey is that the world is certainly not for us, right? Culture teaches us to embrace ourselves instead of dying to ourselves. Culture teaches us to want things instantly. It's a world of hurry and urgency, while this is a journey of patience and gradual transformation. So we are stuck between these voices outside of us and inside of us um, that create tension and, and confusion at times. So who do we turn to 
to follow and model the Christian life if we can't trust ourselves really or the world? Well, we lean on God's word and God's people. God's word and God's people, trusting the spirit to not only guide, but empower us. So that's why we need to consider, um, or we're considering together the spiritual practices, not only individ- of us in- as individuals, but also of us as a church. So let's think for a minute about the purpose of the corporate gathering. Why do we gather? We gather to cultivate practices that restore and restore us as whole people in cooperation with the spirit. We gather together to do this and to remind and restore and restore one another. Well, couldn't we just do it on our own? No, we practice together because something that's really important for us to know is that all knowledge and most particularly knowledge of God has two really important aspects to it. It is embodied and it is embedded. Okay, it is embodied and it is embedded. These things are going to feel a little bit different to us because right now the Enlightenment and our also post-Enlightenment world or postmodern world teaches us to sort of undermine these things. But there is a greater resurgence of understanding that knowledge is um, is it embodied within us, and so hopefully some of this will not sound um, completely uh, challenging to you. But knowledge is something that is actually carried not only in our minds but in our whole selves. We can't split out our mind from our body in some ways. Faith, we we talked about earlier, is a change of allegiance from the domain of darkness to the domain of light. But we have this tendency to think that that's only in the spiritual realm and that the physical and spiritual domains or realms are separate and they don't bear on one another. But that's not what the New Testament teaches. And above all, that's certainly not what the resurrection teaches. Faith is both the thing that the awakening that happens within us when we're captivated by a new view of reality, but it's also the practicing of our allegiance to that, right? So if the physical and the spiritual world are interconnected, that means that changed hearts produce changed hands. Changed hearts produce changed hands. What happens up here actually changes what I do with my body. Our allegiance must be practiced with our hearts and our minds and also our bodies. Here's a couple of examples of how we see that on a daily basis. Getting out of bed to read the word, setting an alarm early, perhaps to make time for it, stilling my heart and my mind for prayer, practicing self-control over big feelings, giving of my body to others, moving into an uncomfortable situation, listening before speaking. I could stand to do a little more of that. Being present with people who are different than me. Our bodies know things. They know all kinds of things about music and and sports, gravity, eating. There's so many things that we our bodies do without us even realizing that we're doing them. So too, do our bodies know things about God? How do we grow in that knowledge of God? The same way we grow, our bodies grow grew in that knowledge of music or of sports. We practice. It might not always feel like something is changing, but little by little, we are teaching even our bodies to orient around the kingdom. And then we're learning from our bodies how to do so. So when we gather together, one of the things that's happening is that we practice our allegiance um, and we restory both our heart and our hands. So um, we 
we are going to gather together as a corporate, as a church, um, to cultivate these practices that restore and restore us as whole people in cooperation with the Spirit. We practice it together because knowledge of God is both embodied and then embedded. So let's talk about what embedded means. Knowledge of God is um, not only embodied, it is embedded. Now, we live in a highly, we've kind of talked about this, um, but a highly individualistic society and world, right? And there's certainly a positivity to that. Um, We absolutely must know the Bible for ourselves. And we must come to decisions about our faith practices on our own and for our own selves. So this is not something we can rely on the community to do for us, right? But at the same time, we never can know or we can never know or practice faith by ourselves. We never know the Bible by ourselves. We never practice faith by ourselves. Now, I would never be able to know all of the things that I am teaching you without the knowledge of others. I am taking what other people have done and I am building upon it and synthesizing it and and spitting it back out to you, right? So if that's true in cognitive terms, isn't that also true in every other aspect of knowledge of God? makes me think about uh, Margaret loves to run a rock tumbler. She likes to polish rocks. And a rock tumbler is a really interesting thing because you put some water and then a whole bunch of different rocks and then some sand in there and you just run it for a long time. And they just jostle together and they rub on each other. And the sharp spots on, on one rock rubs on the on another, the sharp spots on another rock. And it's actually very loud and I don't like the sound of it. Um, but what it produces is a whole bunch of rocks who have actually smoothed each other down, right? And so there is um, an aspect of knowledge that has to come from one another. And sometimes it's it's sharing of ideas and sometimes it's um, pushing up on each other's hard spots, right? You know, sometimes in a season of suffering, it's really hard to show up at church. It's hard to hear people singing things about God being good and so faithful when your life has been turned upside down. And yet there is a beauty in that. We still gather together because it's in those gatherings that other people can believe for us or sing for us, remind us of what is true. Or on the converse, we get to do that for other people, believe for them, pray for them, um, sing in and over them. We believe that there is a spiritual domain um, that transcends what we can see there. We were not created to be consumers, but rather contributors. Together, when we gather together, we practice restoring and restoring not only ourselves, but one another. And all of us have something to contribute I mean, to put it in the most negative sense, all of us have sharp edges that can rub on somebody else's sharp edges, right? So all of us do have something to contribute. Each of us carries in our own selves um, the knowledge of God and some in a unique in a way that is unique and particular to us. And the church is when we gather together and share that. So this is a small and um, brief and probably shoving too much all in the same, uh, trying to shove too much in the same lecture. Uh, anyway, glimpse of sort of the theory behind spiritual practices and then some of the actual practices themselves. I just want to remind us, though, as we turn toward, you know, what the actual practices are that we uh, engage in, there is no magic in the practices. There's no book out there. Um, that you're going to pick up and will change your life and your relationship with God. There's no piece of information that, um, or a radical habit that in and of itself is going to change you and transform you. 
we will be transformed by the grace and power of the spirit as we cultivate practices or intentional actions and mindsets that restore and restore us both individually and collectively. The goal of the church is to be a changed people that practice the kingdom of God corporately, collectively, and individually for and before a watching world. That is what we want. That is what, um, or that's what we want to be. That is where we are headed. And we're going to take the next two shorter lectures um, to talk about how exactly we achieve that.